PA Books is a production of PCN, a nonprofit television network. Listeners like you make our programming possible. To learn more about PCN's mission and to support PCN with a donation, visit PCNTV.com. This link and others can be found in our show notes. We appreciate your support. Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. I'm Phil Beckman. PA Books features interviews with authors of books about Pennsylvania history, culture, and people. In this episode, we talk with Rebecca Yeaman about her experience as an urban archaeologist in Philadelphia. She is the author of the second edition of Digging in the City of Brotherly Love, Stories from Philadelphia Archaeology. This week on PA Books, Rebecca Yeaman author of Digging in the City of Brotherly Love, second edition. Rebecca Yeaman is the author of the second edition of Digging in the City of Brotherly Love, stories from Philadelphia archaeology. Rebecca, why did you choose to become an archaeologist? Wow, that's quite an opening question. Uh, I became an anthropologist, basically beginning in the end of high school, I was in Tucson, Arizona, and I went to the Mission San Javier in the desert, and there were all these different ethnic groups um, coming in to, you know, to pray, basically. And I got very interested in all the different kinds of people that we all live among. And uh, when I went to college, I took anthropology, and I majored in anthropology. And anthropology, of course, in those days, and I think in these days too, is made up of four different fields, archaeology and linguistics and physical anthropology and cultural anthropology. And I became most infatuated with archaeology. And it co of course, it wasn't the kind of archaeology I do now. It was the archaeology of Mesoamerica, and I had these, you know, my professor was the guy who was digging Tikal and Guatemala, and it was all very, very exciting. And I just, you know, I like puzzles. I like being outdoors. I like the physicality of it. I like that it's physical and intellectual, and it's uh, really fun, really fun. And I like getting dirty. After you graduated, uh, what, what was your first job as an archaeologist? Oh, my goodness. First job as an archaeologist. Well, you know, we do all these little jobs where we get hired to just dig shovel tests every 50 feet or every 100 feet because people are putting in a pipeline or something like that. So I had many of those little jobs. I would say that the first real job as an archaeologist was at the uh, Rutgers Archaeological Survey Office. And that was attached to Rutgers University. And their first big project was a project that I worked on for 25 years. So when we started, it was a big pipeline that was going in the road um, at the intersection of Landing Lane and River Road, which is right across from where Rutgers University is, right in the midst of you know, going back and forth from one part of the university to the other. Curiously. When I was a young mother, I had driven along that road a million times but had, and had gone across something called the Landing Lane Bridge a million times, but it had never occurred to me that the remains of an 18th century port town were buried on either side of the Landing Lane and River Road at that point. And the big project that the Rutgers Archaeological Survey Office got was to do archaeology associated with the pipeline that was going to cross that intersection. 
and I had a major role in that project, and uh, it really introduced me to very systematic, well-planned, well-recorded, seriously interpreted archaeology. Was there a big transition going from Mesoamerican archaeology to urban archaeology in cities like Philadelphia and New York? The transition was getting married and having two children and getting divorced and still having the two children. So I didn't go to do Mesoamerican archaeology. And doing archaeology, it was not disappointing because doing archaeology is not just, or at least from my perspective, is not just collecting artifacts. So the fact that I don't collect artifacts that are, you know, the Mesoamerican ones doesn't matter to me. It's digging through the layers and figuring out what they mean and correlating the, you know, relating the, the artifactual finds to the people who probably left the artifacts there. And it's been very rewarding and it has not been disappointing at all. So it was not, I, since I didn't really do Mesoamerican archaeology, I just studied it in the classroom. So the difference was not very big. I mean, I was getting to actually dig in the dirt and figure stuff out. So it, it was, you know, it's always been it's very unboring. It's, you know, to be an archaeologist. People say to me, you know, I wanted to be an archaeologist, and then they grew up, and of course they decided to do something that made money. I, you know, grew up and still still doing archaeology. Well, I'm not still doing it right this minute, but I did it for a long time. Now, in reading your book, uh, you seem to have spent a lot of time excavating privies. Uh, why were privies so significant? Absolutely. Imagine that you noticed that. Uh, in urban situations, they're all that's left. And the reason that they're all that's left is often the backyards, as you saw from my book, the backyards of 18th century houses are destroyed by 19th century buildings with deep basements. So the deep basements destroy the old surface that was behind the house. And it, they destroy the tops of the wells and the privies and the cisterns. But often they don't get to the very bottom. And so what we're really looking at is what's under those old basement floors, what's left of the privies that were in those old backyards, and the stuff that is buried in, in the privy. And happily, the stuff in the privy, nights, what we call night soil, and you know what that is, of course, human waste, is sticky and dense and thick. And so it, it preserves the artifacts that have been thrown in there. I mean, which is really great because we have, you know, they're not, some of them are chopped up and many of them are broken, but we also have, you know, pretty, we can get a pretty good idea of what the objects were and we can get, we can then talk about who's, who's, whose stuff they were and why, why the people had them. Now, when you're dig digging in a privy, given that it is human waste, are there health uh, measures you have to take when working in that that are different from, say, just working in ordinary soil? As a matter of fact, you don't, which is very fortunate. It's, it's not pleasant, uh, as you would well imagine. It's not the same smell that you might think it is. It's a different smell, but it's not a particularly pleasant one. But my father was actually a doctor of public health, and so we were always consulting him about whether it was really okay to be digging these privies in a certain place. And he assured us, and he would, he would consult with his colleagues, and we were assured that we were not going to get some horrible disease. We do take um, samples of night soil and give them to a parasitologist 
who can identify the kinds of worms or the kinds of things that were, you know, left in, in that soil and tell us things about whatever the people were suffering from whose, whose human waste it was. But it's, we're not going to suffer from the same thing. So the answer to your question is, no, it's okay. Now, the book that we're talking about is a second edition. What did you add in this, this edition that was there in the first one? Three more chapters. It would not have been worth it to just do a second edition of the old edition. The whole reason that, you know, a lot of urban archaeology goes on, and these are huge projects, and they're very expensive projects, and they take a huge amount of labor and a lot, you know, intense analysis. So, you know, it's a shame not to be able to communicate the results of those huge projects to the public because it's we do them with public money it's compliance to you know a federal law and um, I'd like to be able to give the public back what our findings have been so since I published the original edition in 2008 a lot of important projects have happened so I folk I did three chapters on projects that have happened in that period that I thought were significant enough and different enough from each other that they should be communicated, that it should be part of the record of the archaeology that's been done in Philadelphia. Now, Philadelphia has, from its origins, been a port town, and uh, you write extensively about some of the waterfront excavations that, that have gone on. Uh, what should people know about what's different from the waterfront the way it was, say, in the late 1600s versus what they would see now if they were walking down in that area? Uh, you'd be on Delaware Avenue. You wouldn't be able to walk down in that area. Isn't that a great site, the West Shipyard site? What an exciting project that was. Because we knew from the work that had been done in the 1980s that there were remains buried in the parking lot, which had been a Hertz rental car parking lot. So it's called the Hertz Project. And they had found that fabulous slipway, which really dates to about, um, I guess, 1800. I can't even remember exactly. Anyway, they had found that. So then when there was pending construction on this particular lot, the old Hertz parking lot, uh, more of it needed to be explored. And we had known from the maps that a very early shipyard that belonged to James uh, West had been there before even William Penn came, you know, even before the founding of Philadelphia. So uh, it was amazing. So we just dug a few trenches to find out if anything was remaining there. And lo and behold, below all sorts of rubble that belonged to a 19th century buildings that had been taken down, but where, way down, I don't remember exactly, three and a half feet below the surface, maybe a little more than that, because it was all, we had to pump the water out and it was, it was deep. Anyway, there were timbers. There were timbers that seemed to be part of a structure, and subsequently more has been uncovered, and they, were, they made a kind of grillage. In, the, in other words, they were cross, crossed each other and made a platform on which ships could have been repaired. You know, I was in the field the first day that we had gotten down to that level, and I'm on the screens, and, you know, we take all the dirt out of the holes, and then we put them in the screens so that we can get all the dirt away from whatever the artifacts are that are in the dirt. And we were finding all these sort of wood chips and pieces of little tools, and I thought, you know, I, I didn't think. I mean, I thought, wow, you know, I don't know what I'm looking for. And then suddenly it occurred to me, well, this is what we were looking for. This is evidence of working on ships. You know, there were these trenels, which are kind of um, 
you know, what are those things called? Anyway, they hold the timbers together. And, and they're amazing. And there were, there were woodworking tools. And so we were finding the debris left from working on ships in the late 1600s in Philadelphia before William Penn arrived. So, you know, it was pretty, pretty cool. Subsequently, that was the company I was working for, which was John Milner Associates. We did that initial testing. Subsequently, AECOM, which is a big engineering company with a major cultural resource division, has done much more work there because now the construction on the block is really being planned. And uh, so they have found more evidence of the early shipyard, and they found evidence of the mid-18th century shipyard. It's absolutely terrific. It's terrific. So it's, it's different than what you see, obviously, what you see along the Delaware now. I mean, you know, these, these piers were wooden uh, platforms, basically. You're just It's very different, very different. Now, when uh, interstate highways are built, are, are there specific requirements for archaeological excavations uh, prior to that process? Absolutely. <laughs> yes. The National Historic Preservation Act, Section 106 of the National Historic Preservation Act, requires that if federal money is being spent, and federal highway money certainly, um, and either on permitting or construction or, you know, if that's being spent, then you have to worry about the cultural resources. So you have to hire an archaeological firm to determine whether the new highway is going to go through an area that potentially has buried remains of something of significance from the past. So now I'm using a bunch of technical words that you don't know are te technical because they're just regular old words. But significant, you know, we have to figure out if it's significant, if it has integrity, if, in other words, if it hasn't been, the things that might be buried there haven't been so disturbed that they won't be meaningful if we dig them up. And the things that might be buried there are significant enough uh, historically to think about. So to do all that evaluating, you have to go through specific procedures. You have to first do the documentary research, then you have to do some kind of ground testing if you think there could be something there in an urban situation. That's complicated because often the things that are buried are buried under many feet of modern fill or, uh, you know, building destruction remains. So you have to get under that stuff. So you have to work alongside big machines. It's one of the fun things about doing archaeology because you have to work with people who have different skills than we do. So we have skills to, you know, use our little trowels and scrape the dirt and look at the colors of the layers that we're uncovering and all that stuff. But these guys driving the machine, you know, they have huge machines, and yet they're very skilled. And so when we say we're looking for walls that are still intact, that are under this fill, could you please go very slowly and remove the fill? And don't, if you hit any walls, don't destroy them. So you learn to work with each other. So the machine operators learn to work with us, and we learn to work with the machine operators. And it's, it's part of doing archaeology is, is bringing all of that together and understanding each other. And we have to be, you know, we have to be sensitive to each other because they've got schedules, they've got budgets, and we've got schedules and we've got budgets, and we've got uh, requirements to, to comply with the law. So we have to produce what is required, or they can't go ahead with their construction. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's wonderfully complex.
Now, one of the sites that you were involved in uh, relating to the I-95 extension was the, the Gunners Run South site. Uh, what did you find there? What was interesting about that site? Uh, I didn't do that work, incidentally. That was done by AECOM, the, comment, the company I just mentioned. So this book is not everything that I've done. Some of, the, some of them are my projects, and many of them are other people's projects. It's, I'm just trying to discuss what is significant, so it doesn't matter that I personally didn't dig it up. However, the Gunners Run South site, and also North, actually, is the most, well, I guess the South site is where they have Dietville, the Dietville factory. Is that what you're asking about, the Dietville glass factory? Yes. I think that's what you're asking about. So that's one of the things that's on, on the Gunners Run South site. Uh, fantastic. I mean, and the archaeology was very elegantly done. George Kress was the person who was in charge of doing the work. And it was complicated because there had been some kind of an industrial complex there since the late 18th century. Thir first, I think it was involved with textiles. And then it had become glass manufacturing. And then this Dr. Diet, he wasn't really a doctor, he was a patent medicine seller, basically, and before that he was a shoeshine person. But he, you know, elevated himself as he got more and more invested in <clears throat> glass manufacture, which was originally to feed his, his patent, patent uh, medicine business. So that's fantastic. And the archaeology was, you know, they had to figure out which was the early 18th century part and which was the middle 18th century part and which was the 19th century part. And there's a wonderful map that shows. And then they had to figure out what, what, what the ovens were and, you know, what the functions of each of these areas on the site was. And that's terrific. I mean, it's terrific. It's, it's you know, it's, you see an old, uh, an, uh, an old industry and its intact layout and it connects you. And, and then in the surrounding blocks, all the people who worked in the glass industry lived. And so you have artifacts from the workmen who were working there, including these wonderful little whimsy things that they made, uh, probably just because they had the ability to work with glass and they could make things that just please them aesthetically and could be given as gifts and, you know, we're just little, little quick. You know, it's amazing. Are you, have you seen the pictures to this book? I hope you've seen the pictures. Yes, yeah. Now, some of the pictures, especially of, of the, uh, the foundations of the ovens, are pretty, are pretty large and pretty striking uh, when yeah. you see them in, in the context of, uh, of, yeah. of the surrounding landscape. And well, one of the items on a different site, but part of the I-95 extension, was, was the, a porcelain moon-faced man. Yeah which was a very striking image as well. Yeah. 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 I think he's very ugly, but everybody else loves him. <laughs> he's, he's used a lot because he's such, an, you know, he's such a whole artifact that um, it's, it's useful not to just have a broken old pot, but to have a moon-faced man. <laughs> do you like him? Do you, li do you like it, how yeah. he looks? Yes, I, I, I do find him kind of interesting. And it came from a German household. Yeah. Now, one of the features of urban archaeology yeah. that you write about in the book is is finding burial grounds, and uh, how do you approach those? Is there once once human remains are found, are there legal procedures that have to be followed? Not necessarily legal, but you, obviously you have to know what you're doing if you're going to excavate burials. I personally do not excavate burials. The project I talk about in one of the new chapters is an amazingly dramatic project because it was found. Uh, in the process of construction on a site that was not publicly funded. 
so they were not required to do archaeology. So suddenly, and that was at 2nd and Art Street in Philadelphia, so somebody's walking by and they notice that human bones are being flipped up by a backhoe that's working on this site, and so they reported it. And as you know, there was this great article in the newspaper that said, old bones found, nobody's in charge. So nobody wanted to take responsibility. Nobody wanted to think about—because excavating burials, as your question reflects, is very complicated, and it's slow and expensive and, um, you know, unpleasant to one who isn't— you know, if you're if you're worried about disturbing somebody who was supposed to rest in peace, you would be sort of disturbed by this, and especially disturbing when a backhoe is flipping up the bones and just going to destroy evidence of the whole thing. So what's amazing about that burial ground at Second and Arch is that it was a very early burial ground associated with the Baptist church, with an early Baptist church. Uh, there seemed to be many, many burials there. The first—and and you, you, and it's all been done without any money. See, usually when we do these projects that are complying with the federal laws, the money is part of the project. So there is money delegated for cultural resources, and so the person who, you know, that, that they're building, the, whoever's doing the developing, has to incorporate that money, so it has to pay for the archaeology to be done. In this case, because no archaeology was required, there was no money. However, people—for instance, this Kimberly Moran, who's at Rutgers Camden, you know, she heard about the project. I guess there was something uh, probably on television, on the news, and she realized, wow, you know, this is too significant to just let go. And so she introduced herself into it, as did somebody who was at the Mutter Museum, uh, Anna Doty. And so the two of them really pressed the developer to recognize that this was too significant not to do something about. And so they did the initial excavation of 78 burials, which was—they um, removed the burials from the site so that they could be excavated out of the dirt somewhere safe and slower, because it's a slow process. You have to use little tiny tools. You know, it's not like digging with the big backhouse. So um, they did—took 78 burials out free. You know, they were just—all the labor was free. They were volunteering because they saw how important it was. And then they got the College of New Jersey involved, and then they got the College of New Jersey—somebody gave some amount of money to at least transport those initial 78 burials to um, a place where they could really excavate them slowly. And then more stuff started turning up—hundreds. And so now I think totally it's either 300 or 400. I can't remember. It's in the book. Um, then they did have to come up with it. The developer had to come up with some money. And, of course, now the developer is proud that they came up with the money. That's, the interesting thing is often, certainly when we worked on the Museum of the American Revolution site, the guy who was in the field uh, managing, you know, the budget and the time and coming, doing all the stuff he had to do, did not like us very much when we started the project. But in the end, he wanted a copy of the archaeological report because he came to recognize how significant the site was that he was building his building on. So, you know, it's often a process of bringing the people who—the non-archaeological people 
into an understanding of why we bother with this and why it takes time and why it costs money and what it's worth, which is knowing about the past. Yeah, in the book you talk about a man named Dan Roberts and you talk about how he developed an approach uh, that served as a model for excavations for African-American uh, burial sites. What, what was his approach and why was this significant? Well, it wasn't that it was the digging, it was the involving the community, involving the descendant community. Yeah, he and Dick Tyler, who was the head of the Historical Commission at the time, they recognized when they ran into the First African Baptist Church, there were two cemeteries belonging to the First African Baptist Church, they recognized that you couldn't just, or they felt that you couldn't just do the archaeology apart from the people who were still you know, attached to that church and who might care that their, you know, that their ancestors were being dug up. <laughs> so this has happened in many communities, a big controversial uh, burial ground in New York, and there was one in Dallas. You know, these are, it's, it's, a, it's a big issue. And Dan and Dick were the first ones, I hope, I hope I'm not claiming inaccurately, there is certainly to really think, all right, we have to invite in the first place, we have to show them what we're doing. So we have to build a platform so people can see what we're doing. We're not doing it secretly. And they can see where the bones are being taken. And that the community, the descendant community, can be involved. And, and well, what's interesting? What should we spend money thinking about? What, what questions do you want answered? What do you want us to do with these bones after we're done analyzing them? So that's what Dan Roberts, and he was, Dan Roberts was my boss at John Milner Associates. He was the head of the Cultural Resource Division, and he was very proud of this work. I mean, I'm sure he considered it his most important work, and it was very important because it has influenced everybody since. Everybody knows that you have to pay attention to the descending community. However, when I did the Franklin Square work, which is talked about in the final chapter of the book, there was a cemetery there, and we, you know, dutifully contacted the descendant church and because we wanted to be sensitive to that this was not an African church, but it was, you know, a descendant community, and we, we thought that they would care, and they didn't really. I mean, they would have liked to have taken some of the gravestones and, and displayed them in their church. They had some gravestones from earlier excavation on the site. But it was interesting that we you know, jump to the conclusion that every descendant community is going to demand that we, you know, work closely with them to answer questions. You just cannot—urban projects have their own personalities, they have their own people who are interested, they have their own client attitudes, and that's one of the fun things. That you, you adjust to it, you learn, you work with them, you, you know, you—, you that's, uh, that's part of it. We'll be back in a moment with the PA Books Podcast. Enjoying this podcast? Please support PCN with a donation at PCNTV.com. This link and others can be found in our show notes. We appreciate your support. Now you mentioned the Franklin Square Project, and, and you talk about in the book of how Philadelphia, the, the original plan was a city of squares. Can you talk about that original plan and who Thomas Holm was? Yeah, Thomas Holm was the surveyor for William Penn. But um, I, you know, I used to live on 21st Street and to live 21st and Pine, 
to when I and my office was at 12th and Arch. So good to go from 21st and Pine to 12th and Arch. I had to walk across Rittenhouse Square every day, every day that I went to the office and didn't go to the field anyway. And of course, Rittenhouse Square, as I'm sure you know, is very beautiful. I consider it one of the most beautiful urban squares, you know, ever that I've certainly that I've ever seen. But what absolutely fascinates me is that that square which did not exist when Thomas Holm and, and uh, William Penn were laying out the city. It didn't exist. It didn't exist until the 19th century. But they imagined it there, and they imagined these five squares, the one where City Hall sits and the one where, where which is Washington Square right near Independence Park, and the one that is Franklin Square and the one um, that is, is uh, at— the fountain, which is now Logan Square, Logan Square. So they imagined the city with these four square, and by God, you know, the city still has them. They haven't all been covered up. They've been used for different things, and Logan Square is now a circle. It isn't a square, <laughs> you know, et cetera. But Rittenhouse Square is right there. It's just like it's on the, it's a, the uh, 1682 map. I mean, and so is Franklin Square. It's right, and so is Washington Square. And, of course, Washington Square has burials under it, and Franklin Square, as you know, has burials under it. Rittenhouse Square does not, but there were burials also at Logan Square. It's very interesting that burial grounds and, and burials are, are close to where people live. So the reason that we're running into all these burial grounds now that there's more and more development in urban places is that people buried, you know, their, their loved ones or the people who have died in the war or died of smallpox, they buried them within the community. They didn't, you know, banish them to outside the community. They buried them inside the community. So that's why we run into them uh, under the squares and, you know, in various other places, under parking lots. and uh, It's just there are a lot of burials in the city, and they're still there. The ones in Washington Square are still there, and the ones in uh, Franklin Square are still there. They're under the little golf course, the miniature golf course. That really amazes me that, you know, the church didn't seem to mind that those burials were going to be left underneath the miniature golf course. But you just don't know who's going to be sensitive to what. Now, one of the major features in Philadelphia is the Independence National Historical uh, Park. Uh, when that was created in the 1950s, how much of a requirement was there at that time uh, for archaeological uh, excavations prior to that type None. of project? None. None. So they didn't do any. I mean, they did a little collecting, but they didn't do controlled archaeological investigations. Uh, when they were, well, there were some controlled excavations inside the area that became the park, but it was nothing like what we had to do when they redid the mall, in, you know, beginning in 1999. I mean, that those were extensive excavations that were required by the regulations that are now in, in place. But um, you saw those pictures. I love that picture of you know, when they dug up, when they took down all the buildings, the first block on the mall, right across from Independence Hall, and on the second block, and you just see it's just bulldozed, it's a mess, they didn't worry about anything. I mean, so the place where the president's house excavation took place, you know, re relatively recently, they had just ignored completely, ignored, ignored. So it's lucky that anything was left. But there was a lot left because, as I said, underneath these 19th century buildings were, you know, 
floors that protected what was beneath. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about this, some of the uh, some of the work that you were doing in that area? You, you, there are photos of the concrete cradle, and then you can see the archaeologists uh, many, many feet down below the surface uh, yeah. working in there. What, what types of uh, yeah. communities or, you know, what types of sites were you looking at there? Well, that's my <clears throat> that was my first big project in Philadelphia because I had previously been working on a huge project in New York. So that was a very exciting project for me. And the cradle is what held up the landscape of the park that was then considered very deteriorated and virtually dangerous, and they needed to upgrade in a serious way. And so the area where they were going to build what is now the Independence Visitor Center is the area that we could investigate. One of my favorite—you know, the whole purpose of these investigations is not to find stuff. It's to find people and to find their stories, to find how people were living in these different periods in Philadelphia and contributions they made. So my favorite find on that particular block, of course, is William Simmons. And William Simmons had a—we dug his privy, and one of those pictures you see is me and somebody else in the privy below the concrete cradle. So it's above our head, right? And then we're down in this privy. And we kept turning—and it was very cold. It was right before Christmas. And it was—we kept turning up bottles. So we thought, oh, God, this, maybe this is a tavern site. Because you don't know—I mean, even though we've done historical research, we don't quite know where we are in the ground. We, you know, when we're, when we're in the field, we can't definitely know, oh, yeah, this is where William Simmons lived. We don't know that yet. So we're excavating all these liquor bottles and various other things that we excavated there. And then, subsequently, found, we found out that this was where we, William Simmons lived in the 1790s. And he was the chief clerk in the, um, some office of the, the Department of Treasury. So he worked for Alexander Hamilton, which is pretty fantastic, in the 1790s. And his office, actually, is it, it enclosed in a little brick thing right next to the First Bank. And, of course, there were those articles this week in the paper about how the First Bank is going to be a museum about the Treasury. And, you know, we'll certainly have Alexander Hamilton will be a big player. Anyway, so William Simmons was an accountant. And so he was he was doing the work. So, you know, we always talk about the Founding Fathers and how important they were, and they wrote all those important documents that we all revere. But here's Simmons, you know, he's doing the numbers. I mean, he, he's doing the you-know-what kind of work. And he's more like the rest of us. You know, he's not a famous man. He's a man who's just doing his job. Just changed my whole perspective of early Philadelphia. Because then you could envision, you know, all of these accountants and secretaries and all these people who are doing really the work, scurrying down Sixth Street, uh, going to their offices, drink, coming home and drinking to relax, and boarding people who are members of Congress when when Congress is in session, arguing about politics. I mean, these are. This is these are the real people. These are the real folk doing the work. I love it. I I love William Simmons dearly. And it was very coincidental that I was in the library one day and I was looking at Alexander Hamilton's papers and I don't really, you know, they're all published. There are many volumes. I don't really remember why I was looking at those papers, but I looked in the index for William Simmons' name and by God, you know, Hamilton had written a letter 
of, of uh, recommending him for a job in the War Department from the Treasury Department. So in Hamilton's words, we have a description of how important William Simmons would be at his next job in the War Department. And of course, Simmons got that job. And then he didn't get along with that boss. And there were other letters that are attacking Simmons for being a grouch and being a stick to the law guy, you know, no, no exceptions. Everybody had to do exactly what he thought they should do. So uh, that's the thing about historical archaeology. So you start with the privy and the night soil and the broken artifacts. You get them out of the ground. You date the layer of soil from which they came. You look at the documents, like the directories and the census records and the deeds and you know, every document you can probably fi possibly find. You figure out whose stuff came from that particular layer, who they were, and hopefully what their job was. So we find, you know, William Simmons is associated with all those wine bottles and a lot of pipe stems, and uh, you know, so that you know you can picture him using these things, but it leads you to a much uh, broader context. So imagine it led me to, I somehow got something from Alexander Hamilton's papers that connected to this guy whose privy we had dug uh, underneath the cradle of the old park. So it's just, and that happens many times, many times, where you just start with the stuff connected to the people and then put it in the context of where we are historically. And it leads you to different questions than historians ask, and it leads you to different insights than, you know, strictly strict historians have. Now, to follow on with that, uh, as uh, not everybody is written about in the history books, and different groups of people are not as uh, covered as well there, but when you're doing these digs, you're, you're finding artifacts from people's lives. Well, what, what do, uh, as you've explored some of these communities in Philadelphia, what, what have you found about, say, the role of, of women in, in the communities or the, the way that their lives were uh, in, in the 18th and 19th centuries? Uh -huh. Well, of course, my favorite woman is Mary Humphreys. Uh, from the Museum of the American Revolution. I assume you're going to talk about that chapter and that you want to talk a little bit about that chapter. So, for instance, uh, uh, Mrs. Humphreys was running an illegal tavern on a back alley. So um, that is amazing. So she's married to a cutler who is uh, wants to get out of the cutlery business. He, he made screws. And we found an ad where he's selling his screw-making machine, and they're moving to the block, to, the, to Carter's Alley, which crosses the um, block where the Museum of the American Revolution now stands. And so we found, here is, again, an example of you start with the stuff. So the guy who was analyzing the glass from the privy that we dug on the, the uh, property where Mary and, and her husband lived um, said to me, he thinks there's a tavern there. Again, it's the tavern. We always conclude that you have a tavern if you have a lot of wine bottles, a lot of liquor bottles. And I said, absolutely not, Alex. I know who lived there, and there was not a tavern there. And so he says to me, there was a tavern there, I've got a hundred bottles, you know, this, that, and the other thing. So we look for, you had to have a license to run a tavern. 
So the doc, the guy who was doing documentary research on the project, um, and me, went to different libraries, written different repositories, so that we could find the tavern licenses. And of course, we couldn't find a tavern license. But Todd, who was the other person doing research, found where Mary Humphreys was arrested for running an illegal tavern, basically on the. And she was punished. She was driven through the street to, uh, out of shame, I guess, to shame her. And then she had to do work in the workhouse, even though she wasn't um, judged as completely guilty. So we don't really understand that. Maybe there had been assumption that there were prostitutes in her at her tavern, but maybe there weren't. I, we just we just we don't know. But what it is an example of is is women working. I mean, she was she was working. She was obviously, you know, a big part of the income of that household. So that's that's one example of um, a woman who we all find very fascinating. I mean, she's really terrific, and she stayed there. She lived well into her eighties. I can't remember exactly, and she uh, stayed in the same house until eighteen thirty. So I'm glad that we talked about William Simmons, because I just love the idea that when William Simmons was in his office across the street next to the First Bank in the 1790s, Mary Humphreys was across the street in her illegal tavern. <laughs> maybe. Or maybe, I don't know if the tavern had reopened. But, you know, she was there. They could have crossed on the street. So, you know, one of the things about doing this work in the city is that you're just you're fleshing out, you know, pieces of the past and having people relate to each other. I love that. I, I love that we can contribute. And that's one of the reasons that I like to publish this stuff, too, because I have the fun of making these discoveries and making these connections and meeting these personalities, meeting these people. But I want other people to feel that, too, so that when you walk down the streets in Philadelphia, you can think about, you know, what was here before and who was here, mainly who was here before and what they were doing and how it all fits together. Now, you mentioned the Museum of the American Revolution, and in the book you write about how it was originally—the original plan was for it to be out near Valley Forge. Can you talk about what that original plan was and how it ended up into the city? Oh, yeah. Well, it was huge controversy. You know, I've written another book about the Museum of the American Revolution, just about the archaeology. So when I did this book, I had the opportunity to tell the whole story, because it's— as I've said, there are politics involved with this kind of archaeology, and it's a wonderful example of the politics and how you know various interest groups try to press themselves on the decision-making process. So in that case, um, there was this collection made by this man named Reverend Burke. Uh, what's his for you? Herbert Burke, I guess was his name, and he was the one who started that chapel. You know, he got the chapel built uh, at Valley Forge. Haven't you always wondered why there was a strange, a Gothic chapel right in the midst of Valley Forge? I had always wondered about it. Anyway, it was he. He was a minister, and he was very interested in history, and he was also very interested in the—he was reverent to Valley Forge and George Washington. He was really greatly infatuated with that historical personage. But he was also infatuated with collecting stuff. So he collected stuff that related to George Washington, but he also collected stuff that related to all sorts, all, all sorts of other things. So there was this collection, and in—I um, can't remember exactly—some early 2000s, I guess. The, his, oh, and he knew 
that if he died, that collection, he didn't know what would happen to it. So he got it to the Historical Society, or he created the Historical Society. So the Valley Forge Historical Society had responsibility for the collection. So it was going to be moved outside of the, away from the chapel where they had exhibited it, and they had to find a place to put it, and they had to decide whether it was important enough to build a museum for it. So they hired a bunch of consultants, and they decided it was important enough and that it should be part of Valley Forge Park. But the park people didn't really want the Museum of the American Revolution. They didn't want... I, it's a little unclear. I'm sure I haven't been told the whole story, but... First, it looked as if it was going to work out and it was going to be part of the visitor center. It would be a building next to the visitor. But then it turned out they didn't really want that. So Jerry Lindfest, who we all know is, has been such a benefit, you know, has done so much for the city, uh, knew that the archdiocese had 78 acres across the river that they wanted to sell. And so he decided that he would help the museum they would buy the 78 acres and be able to build a wonderful museum. And Robert Stern, the famous archaeologist, or his office, designed a wonderful building that was going to be do justice, and it was going to have George Washington's tent, one of the major artifacts that Burke had, Burke had collected, and it was going to be terrific. However, the Park Service really didn't want that either. So they hired us to do a bunch of archaeology, through which we found nothing, and do a bunch of research, and there was nothing really that should have been considered, uh, you know, a, a, would have been a disaster for the museum to disturb. Nothing. So, but the the community didn't want more traffic, and then there were various other interest groups. But it was really, there was internal pressure not to have the museum there. So Rendell and Lenfist, you know, were walking around Philadelphia one day, and they were on 3rd Street, and they saw the visitor center there that had been built in 1976 for the Bicentennial, and they thought a better use for that piece of property would be a museum to house this wonderful artifact collection. And that is really what happened. But they had to trade the, part, the 78 acres that they had bought in Valley Forge for the museum site, which was belonged to the National Park Service. The National Park Service said, okay, if you get this piece of land right here in the heart of the oldest part of Philadelphia, you have to do serious archaeology. And that's how we got to do the archaeology. And it was wonderful archaeology. Another site that you talk about in the book is the Eastern State Penitentiary. Uh, why were archaeologists brought in there to, to explore? Willie Sutton, don't you love it? Uh, um, um, because they were celebrate, they were using, I don't know how well you know the site, but they had to find uses for this site so it wouldn't be, become a commercial thing. And, you know, they made it into this fascinating interpretive center. I mean, it's just terrific. They've done wonderful things there. So in this case, they knew Willie Sutton, the famous bank robber, had been imprisoned there. And there had been a prison escape in 1945. So they decided to use that prison escape as a focus for, you know, getting people interested. And so they're going to celebrate the anniversary of the prison escape, which seemed to be associated with Willie Sutton, the famous bank robber. So they hired us to determine whether there was any— oh, and the prison escape was through a tunnel that had been dug out of somebody's cell. 
Uh, and, you know, the tunnel is amazing. It crossed under the prison yard and then dipped down and crossed under that phenomenal wall on the outside of the Eastern State Penitentiary. And, and so it was a great event. So uh, we had to determine whether that tunnel was still intact, and we used ground-penetrating radar to figure out where the tunnel had been. And so we had that. We had the location, and then we had to dig into that location to see if there was anything left in the tunnel. So it was such a fun project. I mean, really fun. Because uh, first, you know, we dug down and there was nothing, and then we finally found it, and then we used a sewer camera. We got people who had a sewer camera to you put it down into the hole because they use it in, a, in sewer projects to see whether there are any, you know, things that are blockages or whatever they are. And uh, that could see, and it finally saw the arch in the tunnel and how it was being held up and little evidence of the electricity that they'd gotten in the tunnel. So Clarence Kleindienst, it was in his cell that the tunnel had been dug. He had hidden the excavation behind a laundry basket, and they had, he had done it at night over a year. And he had a roommate who helped him, and one of them would go down into the hole at night and they would put a phony body in the bed so that if the guard went by, he would see two people in the bed, but actually just one person was really down in the hole. It's phenomenal, phenomenal. They were not even digging through intact ground. They were digging through fill that had been put on the site before they built the prison. So it was, I mean, absolutely phenomenal. So Kleindienst never knew in his lifetime how dangerous what he had done was. But doesn't it fascinate you? It certainly fascinates me that we admire criminals when they escape because it's so clever. I mean, you know, it's not so great that they were criminals, but when they can get out and be so inventive and courageous, you know, daring and amazing. I mean, absolutely amazing that these guys did this, and only one of them got away permanently, and it wasn't Clarence Kindenst. In terms of Willie Sutton, he really had nothing to do with the project except when they all went out in the morning after the tunnel was finished, he, you know, latched on to the group. But if you read his autobiography, he has several, he claims that he directed the, the digging of the tunnel. He directed the people. I mean, completely, you know, he was obviously uh, quite a liar. <laughs> but it made it famous. I understand now. I'm so pleased because, you know, I made a big fuss during this. I kept saying, why do you talk about Willie Sutton? This is Claren Kleindienst is the real hero here. He's the person who had the guts to build this tunnel right out of his, his, his cell. And you should talk about him, not Willie Sutton. But they continue to talk about Willie Sutton. I just recently met somebody who's working at the, at the prison, and they now talk about Kleine. They call him Kleine. And they, so he's getting some attention. I have to go visit the site and see exactly how they do it. There is a um, video inside the prison, incidentally. You can go and hear me and see me many years ago talking about the tunnel, talking about the archaeology that we did. It was a fun project. <laughs> Another site you talk about in the book is the site of the National Constitution Center. Uh, you mentioned that it, it may have been the richest site ever investigated in Philadelphia. W what was so significant about that archaeologically? Um, well, it's fantastic. I mean, I didn't work on that project, tragically. 
uh, because it was, it's a whole neighbor, I mean, it's many neighborhoods, I mean, just amazing, amazing. What's really significant about it, and the reason we say it's such a significant site, is that they had intact ground surface. Now, remember we talked a long time ago about how most of the 18th century backyards have been destroyed by 19th century buildings with deep basements. They didn't have that on that block. So that's amazing. So they actually have intact soil, backyards that go with uh, many, many different properties. And they have many different what we call features, which are these privies or wells or cisterns that are associated with the intact ground surface. The tragedy of that project is it isn't analyzed. So they took, you know, more than a million artifacts out of the ground, and only some of them <laughs> have been analyzed, and it hasn't been reported. So, you know, it may have been the most significant site, and I wanted desperately to be able to say a lot more about that in the, in the second edition of this book, because I had talked about it in the first edition, and we hope to have much more information. As you know, in the second edition, we did talk about this phenomenal analysis that Sissy Pipes uh, has done of animal remains, and she sees all this abuse of animals and the disease in the animal population, which is is very sad, like shoulder um, bones of sheep that have been broken by overcrowding and the bloodletting that had you know made the flesh of uh, certain animals whiter so that it would please the people. You know, lots of I'm very excited by the results of her work. So even though it isn't property by property and it doesn't go with these intact yard deposits, it's it's general. They all this you know com coming from many different properties. This kind of evidence of oh there was epidemics among cats and you know the death of dogs. I, dog catchers. It's quite, it's a very interesting study. So there's a lot of data there, and hopefully over the years uh, it will be completely, anal or different people will analyze different, uh, different segments of it. It's just, when you take, urban projects are very challenging. It's very tempting to take everything, because there's so much there. But you can't take everything. If you take everything, you get bogged down, and you can't analyze it. You can't give it the kind of attention it needs so that you can connect it to the documents, so that you can get connected to the context, all the things I talked about. Because you're just overwhelmed. You have to wash all the artifacts and write little numbers on them that correspond to where they came out of the ground. And then you have to correlate them with the documents. And then you have to see all the, you know, it's a lot to do. It's a lot to do. So my approach is to focus on the most promising deposits that can definitely be connected to people and that you can really talk about, you know, the people, not just uh, have an inventory of neat artifacts. Now, we have just a, a couple of minutes left, but before we go, I wanted to ask you about a woman named Barbara Liggett. You describe her as a cigar-smoking lady archaeologist. Who is she? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Dan Roberts started by working with her. Uh, you know, Dan Roberts, my boss, the one who did the first African Baptist Church, he worked at uh, Franklin Court, and where she was the director of the original excavations at, at Franklin Court. She did a lot of work in the city. Uh, she uh, didn't produce a lot of reports, but she did a lot of identifying these features. And, you know, the ones, if you walk in Franklin Court now and you see all the features, you see the tops of them are, are retained and, you know, sort of interpreted in the, in the yard there, which is neat. 
I mean, yeah, she was quite uh, quite a woman. I mean, she was uh, in charge. You know, I remember hearing about her when I was just studying archaeology and how impressive she was. I mean, it was uh, great, <laughs> great that she took it so seriously. You know, archaeology has. My grandmother told me there were women who wanted to be archaeologists at Wellesley in the 1920s, but that was because they, you know, had, could have rich husbands and they could go off and diddle around in archaeology, but. Recently, including Barbara Liggett, I mean, it's not so recently, going back to the 60s, certainly, uh, women have been very active, especially in urban archaeology. Maybe it's because you can sort of stay home and do it, you know, you do it in your backyard, so to speak. But um, it's, it's, we, I think we've made quite a contribution. I mean, there are many very leading archaeologists who are women now and have been certainly during my whole career. We'll be speaking with Rebecca Yeaman. She is the author of the second edition of Digging in the City of Brotherly Love, Stories from Philadelphia Archaeology. Rebecca, thank you for joining me. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Listeners like you make PCN programming possible. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN Select app. To learn more about PCN's mission and to support PCN with a donation, visit PCNTV.com. This link and others can be found in our show notes. We appreciate your support.